You're sitting on your porch when all of a sudden, dozens of dark-suited men start to run towards you. You start to get scared, but then they all bow. My king, we finally found you. On the next Snap Judgment, from PRX and NPR, The Crown. Snap Judgment, storytelling with the beat. Do not miss it. This Snap Judgment podcast is supported by MailChimp. More than 5 million people and businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters, and MailChimp also distributes hats for cats and small dogs. More at MailChimp.com. Okay, so a while ago, I worked as the junior, 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 junior foreign service officer at the Malaysian embassy, right? And one day, one of the embassy staff, Ravi, he was assigned the job of introducing me to some bigwigs at the Malaysian Congress. And of course, this made Ravi angry because he had better things to do. So before we left, Ravi looked me in the eye. Glenn, this is serious. These are very important people. None of your fooling about. Man, 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 don't worry. I'm cool. Do not worry. We get down to the parliament building. And Ravi knows exactly what he's doing. We march down one hall, up some stairs, past the side room, and he opens an unmarked door. It's a special fancy lunchroom for the muckety mucks. We walk in, fancy china, bow-tied waiters, and seated there, right at the door, is the deputy prime minister himself, the man destined to seize the reins of power any moment, Anwar Ibrahim, the prince-in-waiting. And surrounded by 10, 15 brown nosers. And Robbie's like, do not look him in the eye. So I do not look him in the eye. I try to be cool and saunter by, but the prince holds out his hand, stops me, reads my name tag. Washington. Washington. You're from the American Embassy. And he's talking to me, and I'm nervous. Yes, my liege, my, my deputy, Mr. Prime Minister, sir. And like he knows me, Anwar goes on about the Jackson family and Hadagi Murakami books and fish and chips and paintball and pretty soon it's like we're old friends laughing and talking and he says we should go sing karaoke and I'm starting to get real comfortable right and I'm like hey 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 hey, hey Mr. Deputy Prime Minister I saw in the paper that you won second prize in a coconut husking contest this morning <laughs> correct second prize well has the first prize winner been beheaded yet? <gasps> All the laughing stops. The brown nosers grimace. Even the waiters don't make a sound. Ravi shoots daggers at me. I can hear his thoughts in my head. I told you, I told you, I told you, I told you. The deputy prime minister looks at me for a moment. Hard. Slow motion hard. And he rocks his head back and starts laughing. Then the brown nosers start laughing, and the room starts laughing, and I start laughing. But Robbie's not laughing. When we leave, he gets all up in my face. I can see the inside of his nostrils. He says, in the presence of a scorpion, never sleep. Today on Snap Judgment, from PRX and NPR, we proudly present The Crown stories where regular people, people like you and me, bump up against the most exalted class of all, royalty. Yes, heavy is the head that wears the crown. My name is Glenn Washington, and this this is Snap Judgment. Snap Judgment.
we're going to start off today's Snap Judgment Crown episode with some folk aspiring to the very highest office of all. Snap Judgments, Stephanie Fu has a story. In 1954, an article was published in Harper's Magazine. In it was a story about two women in a sanitarium who both believed they were the Virgin Mary. The patients were placed in the same ward, and after some time living together, one of the patients realized that since they couldn't both be Mary, maybe she wasn't Mary after all. She snapped out of her delusion, and shortly thereafter, she was discharged from the hospital. Milton Rokich read this article and thought, I've got to try this myself. Rokich was a highly respected chain-smoking psychologist with a no-nonsense attitude. But he was also known to go the extra mile to help his students and colleagues. And this story about the two Marys, it got him thinking about how we construct our own identities. Why do we think we are who we think we are? And how could he use this information to help schizophrenics? To figure this out, in 1959, Dr. Rokic found three schizophrenic men in Michigan who believed they were Jesus Christ. Rokic brought them together to live at the Ypsilanti State Mental Hospital. He called them the Three Christs. Rokic is no longer alive to tell his story, but his graduate students, the ones who helped him orchestrate this experiment, are. This is Ron. I'm uh, Ron Hoppy. And Dick. My name is Richard Bonnier. Do you remember meeting the three Christs for the first time? Yes, I do. I was a little apprehensive because I had no experience really with working or, quote, living with uh, chronically ill people. We all brought into a room, and the three of us met the, uh, the three of them. The oldest was Clyde. He was also the farthest gone. At 70, he was pretty senile, and he'd also suffered dementia from years of alcoholism. The second Christ was Joseph. He was a little younger than Clyde and used to be a writer before falling into a delusional state, believing that he was British and needed to go back to England to serve the Queen. The third Christ was the saddest case. Leon was in his 30s and was very coherent and well-spoken, but he had been raised by a severely religious schizophrenic woman and now believed that he was God and that he had magical powers. Of all the Christs, Leon was the most regal. He even looked like paintings of Jesus. Dr. Rokic uprooted these men from the environments they knew, put them all in the same ward, and insisted that they have daily meetings together to talk about being Christ. Needless to say, they did not get along. They spat and ranted and argued, each Christ fighting desperately to assert his role as king. The grad students, Ron and Dick, monitored and recorded the three Christ behavior for 11 hours a day, every day, while Rokic came in for the group meeting once a week. He would lead the discussion, he would ask questions, something like, how do you think so-and-so would feel about that? He was trying to get them to think about their beliefs and change their beliefs. And Leon said uh, he was trying to brainwash us. But somehow, amongst all the shouting... They did become friends. They began to share a certain familiarity with each other. They sat together in the ward during their free time, lent each other rolling papers, stuck up for each other against other patients, and they even humored each other's delusions. It's like when I was a child and I would see all these different Santa Clauses, right? And how did, but there was only supposed to be one Santa Claus. But then my parents resolved that by saying, well, there's one true Santa Claus, but then these, all these others that you see are just helpers. And they kind of handled that in the same way, that they were the true God or Christ, and these, these others were, Leon's terms were instrumental gods. It's not like any of them stopped believing that they were God, but they turned the other cheek and kept their beliefs to themselves because they wanted to give the others a chance to believe that they were God too. Which was shocking to Rokic, because he believed that schizophrenics were unable to empathize with others. That fact wasn't shocking to Dick and Ron, the grad students. They'd always known the three Christs had feelings. They spent so much time with them, they couldn't help but get close to them. Dick's favorite Christ was Clyde. 
But every once in a while he'd clear up and speak of the old days on the railroad and going fishing and things like that. And he was a great raconteur, very warm. And Ron liked Joseph the best. Often he would want me to take him to a small store and he would buy a can of baked beans and open it up and eat that. And he loved that. And we would talk about books because he was a great reader. And he would pick up magazines and books and then throw them up windows when he thought people weren't looking. <laughs> Why? Uh, why? <laughs> why any that? I have no idea. In my belief system, it did not make sense. <laughs> but Ron tried to make sense of it anyway. The grad students tried to be empathetic with the Christs in order to communicate with them. They didn't expect that befriending the mentally ill would start to blur their own realities. In fact, we used to often play with letting ourselves slide into a paranoid frame of reference and just see who could last the longest before he became so anxious he had to get out. I think it was a way probably of working through the fear that we encountered at Ypsilanti. But you can make anything into a source of paranoia. I'm sitting here in a studio, which is a perfect place to be paranoid. You've got microphones. <laughs> and all sorts of gadgets, you know, looking at you. You can wonder about who placed them there, who really placed them there, who really placed them there, and go on and on with this endlessly. The grad students began to resent Rokich. Here they were, questioning their sanity in an asylum, and there he was, behind a desk at the university. We got so angry at uh, Milt. And it was that he was getting all the gravy and we were in here doing all the suffering. He was a smart guy, but he wasn't there. And whenever Rokich did show up, he pestered the patients with such a strong line of questioning, pressuring them to admit that each of them was the one and only Christ. This just confused the patients, and they began to backslide and squabble against each other again. I can only imagine the anger they must have felt towards Rokich. He always represented, I think, power, a lot of power. We did believe that he was behaving too confrontational. So Ron and Dick confronted him about it. I guess it was our feeling of, of being protective of these guys. He's a very, was a very cerebral person. He just disagreed, and that was it. Ron and Dick eventually left the study to complete their programs. And that's when Rokich's tactics got even more extreme. A journalist covered the story of the three Christs in the local paper. The writer was not kind to the Christs and poked fun at their situation. Rokich brought in the article and showed it to the men. Clyde didn't understand it. Joseph didn't even realize the article was about him. He said the men in the article were nuts. Only Leon understood. He began yelling, saying that he had been betrayed and that his feelings were hurt. Leon's reaction intrigued Rokich. His next plan was to create a positive authority figure for Leon. He hired a beautiful woman, Miss Anderson, to be his next research assistant. He basically had Miss Anderson flirt with Leon, trying to get him to fall in love with her. He thought that Leon would be able to choose to leave behind his schizophrenia in order to be with her. And Leon did fall in love with her. He was still reachable beneath that intense delusional system because he showed wishes to connect with people, like with the young woman research assistant. But unfortunately, it was just a tease. Because Miss Anderson would never really be with Leon. And Leon wasn't stupid. He soon figured that out, that she didn't really love him, and she never would. And so he withdrew even further, saying, Truth is my friend. I have no other friends. Using deception and entrapment to tap into where he had strong feelings was cruel. The recollection of it still moves me very painfully. I think so much more could have been done with him. If he had had more real psychological treatment at that point, he could have been helped. The study wound up lasting two years. Afterward, Milton Rokich published the successful book, The Three Christs of Ypsilanti. In it, he admitted that none of the three Christs were cured of their schizophrenic delusions. However, the study did cure a fourth Christ. Twenty years after the study, Milton Rokich wrote an afterword to his book. Here's an excerpt. 
I must confess that I now almost regret having written and published the three Christs of Ypsilanti when I did. While I failed to cure the three Christs of their delusions, they succeeded in curing me of mine, of my godlike delusion that I could change them by omnipotently rearranging their daily lives. I found out from my teachers, the three Christs of Ypsilanti, exactly in what sense they were trying to be godlike. They were striving for goodness and greatness, and such strivings, I came to understand, are really the strivings of all of us. Big thanks to Richard Bonnier and Ronald Hopp for their help in the story. We owe a big debt as well to Milton Rokic's book, The Three Christs of Ypsilanti. We'll have a link on our website, snapjudgment.org. That piece was produced by Snap Judgment's own Stephanie Fu. When we return to the Snap Judgment Crown episode, oh, the places we will go. Scotland, North Korea, Saudi Arabia, and a tabletop in San Francisco. All this and more. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to Snap Judgment. There are lots of other NPR podcasts, including TED Radio Hour, hosted by Guy Raz. TED Radio Hour is a journey through fascinating ideas, astonishing inventions, fresh approaches to old problems, and new ways to think and create. Find it on iTunes under Podcasts. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Crown episode, where today we take you behind the veil to glimpse a world the average person knows nothing about. Now, Jane Amelia Larson was an actress and producer living in Los Angeles. And when money got tight, she started looking around for a few extra ways to make some cash. I had some friends that were chauffeurs. You can make a lot of money, you can make really good tips. I thought, I'm going to do this. I knew a guy who was driving and he was arranging a detail for a Saudi family that was coming to town, a Saudi royal family. They wanted one female driver in particular to drive a young teenage princess. I had heard rumors that the Saudi royals tip really well if they're happy with what you do. It was a family of seven with an entourage of over 40. And that entourage included massage therapists, trainers, cooks, servants. The Saturday Royals were vacationing in Beverly Hills. Whenever people come into town, into Beverly Hills, they love to shop. The Saudis just cleaned out the shops cleaned them out. We went to Chanel and to Hermes and to Tiffany's. Hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of shopping a day. It was astounding. And what I found also remarkable is that I never saw any of the royals handle any cash, actually. The servants paid for everything. The Saudis would just choose what they liked, leave the store and go to the next store. And then the servants would scurry to pay for everything and grab the bags and throw them into a van at the back of the limo line. At the time, I was so broke and I was so happy to have a job that I didn't think about the comparison between my condition and theirs. But as time went on, 
Once I was working 16 or 18 hours a day, I got, I got mad because I thought, you know, here are these people with billions and billions of dollars that don't even think about what they're spending, that don't, don't have any idea, don't even, it doesn't even come into their consciousness. One of the princesses that I was assigned to drive, and I ended up driving uh, for quite a while, was Princess Regia, and she was a young teenager. She had her own personal maidservant, so that when she walked into the hotel, she would just drop all her clothing as she was taking it off, because there were, were maids to pick it up. She didn't do anything for herself. She didn't do anything. Now, at first, she didn't look at me or talk to me at all. Because remember, she's a Saudi royal. And I was a lowly chauffeur, and I was constantly reminded of that. As I spent more time with this young princess, she started to clock everything that I said and did. And she noticed that I had a stash of power bars in the glove compartment. And she was curious about them, and she wanted to see what they were like. So I drove her to Whole Foods with her nanny. She started to choose boxes of the power bars, a whole box of one, a whole box of another, a whole box of another. To buy just one of them loose like that was very unprincess-like. We ended up buying hundreds of dollars worth of power bars. As I said before, I never saw any of the Saudis touch money ever. So the nanny took it upon herself to teach the young princess how to use cash. So what the princess did, after all the power bars were tallied, she threw down several hundred-dollar bills, and then she just walked away and didn't wait for the change. And the cashier just was kind of stunned for a second and then said, excuse me, miss, uh, you gotta, there's, there's change for you. And once the princess realized that she hadn't handled the transaction correctly, she was totally mortified. And it was so painful to watch. She got so red in the face and so embarrassed. I really felt for her in that moment because she had, was making a lot of effort to show that she could be just like any other American teenager. But, you know, she, she couldn't really. There is this seemingly endless cash to do anything you want. But, you know, they couldn't do anything they want. They led very carefully circumscribed lives. There was one young princess that I drove who was maybe 17 or 18 years old. Her name was Princess Soraya. She was a lovely girl, very pretty, very sweet. And she had come from a summer course at Berkeley, and she had been thrilled to be actually studying there. And as soon as she got in the car, she told me that she wanted to go see UCLA. And as we drove through the UCLA campus, she got very excited and also very sad at the same time. What was unusual about her is this was the first conversation that I had with any of the Saudi royals about anything of an intellectual nature, and she told me that she'd taken a course on the writings of Ralph Waldo Emerson. She had been thinking on Emerson's ideas that we all aspire to be part of the same God. And then she told me that she had begged her father to stay here to study at UCLA and that she was not being allowed to stay because she was being sent home to be married. She was going to be the third wife of a colleague of her father's, and she was told that he was very kind. I was very touched by her bravery, by her loyalty to her family, uh, by her insistence that she was looking forward to making her family proud, to making her family happy that that was her duty. I just admired the heck out of her. I spent the whole afternoon with her, and at the end of the day, she wanted very much to go to the beach. We parked along the Pacific Coast Highway, and we just watched the waves, and we watched the surfers, actually. It was really beautiful, because they were silhouetted against the sun, and after a while, I, I said, don't you want to get out of the car? Don't you want to walk along the water or put your toes in the sand? And she said, no, no, thank you. I, I will just look. Thank you. What she did was sat in silence and 
sobbed as she powered the window up and down, up and down, up and down, until she had composed herself, until I, I felt that we were, we were ready to move on. Thank you, Jane Amelia Larson, for sharing that story with Snap. Find out more about Jane's time with the Saudi princesses and a link to her book, DrivingTheSaudis.com, on our website, snapjudgment.org. That piece was produced by Anna Sussman with sound design by Julia DeWitt. Next up, we're going back, back, back in time and backstage to the very first Snap Judgment live show ever. I get to introduce Snap audiences to a different type of royalty. Let's jump right in. Snap Judgment, live. Our next performer, next guest here tonight, her great, great, great grandmother was the last person in Scotland burned at the stake for being a witch. They tried to kill the magic. They tried to stamp it out. They couldn't do it. They couldn't stamp it out. It's still here. Ran through that bloodline, and I am so proud, so happy to introduce to you today Miss Catherine McEwen. When I first moved to America, I realized pretty quickly that I could fool everyone into thinking that I'd grown up like the queen. (laughs) Now, when people meet me, they want to believe that my life back in England had been like living on the set of sense and sensibility. (laughs) When in reality, where I grew up looked more like the set of The Wire. Now, the person responsible for this illusion is my mother. Raising five kids in a two and a half bedroom house next door to a gas station in a town voted worst place to live in the UK four years in a row, it's difficult at the best of times. But raising those five girls so that someday they might grow up and fool people into thinking that they were the queen, that is a monumental task. Now, the first obstacle that she faced was the issue of schooling. She obviously couldn't afford private schools, and she certainly wasn't going to send us to the local state schools. No, no, no. So there was only one option left available to her. She taught us herself at home. This, frankly, shocked and offended the community. Oh! So our schools aren't good enough for your kids then, Mrs. McEwen. You think your kids are too bleeding good for our schools, do ya? Frankly, my dear, yes, I do. Now, one of the primary functions of a good British private school is to grind that regional accent out of you. This task my mother also took upon herself, so we developed two accents. We had one for inside. Hello, mummy. Anything I can do to help with dinner? And then one for out on the street. All right, Owlass. What the hell are you looking at? You're looking at me, you're chewing a brick. Either way, you'll lose your teeth. You see, speaking posh in my neighborhood didn't go down so well. Oh, just look at you. Who the hell do you think you are? You think you're so good, don't you? Get off your high horse. But get on our high horse we did with my mother dragging us, kicking and screaming behind her. You see, back then, 
I really didn't appreciate quite what my mother was doing for me. I hated being an outcast. I mean, I tried everything I could to fit in. I started smoking at 12. I couldn't wait to start smoking. It wasn't a question of if, it was a question of when. When the hell was someone going to offer me a bloody cigarette? But I'd barely lit that thing up. I mean, I hadn't even like exhaled my first puff. The word got back to my mother. Hey, 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 Mrs. McEwen, we saw your daughter smoking. Not so good now, are you? Maybe if you'd sent her to school, maybe she wouldn't be smoking. You ever think of that? At 15, I was caught shoplifting. At 17, I was arrested for drunk and disorderly. And by 18, I'd had 12 tattoos. But it didn't work. They weren't going to accept me because they could sniff me out as a fake. The same way that proper posh people in England, they see through all this and they know I'm really as common as muck. So it wasn't until I moved here, America, the land of the free, that it really hit home just what my mother had given me. You see, I'd received a letter from my best friend from back home, the one I'd gone shoplifting with, smoked my first cigarette with, got my first tattoo with. And she was writing to me from her little council flat, telling me all about her three kids that she had by three different dads and how this time she was going to kick out that lying, cheating, violent, abusive boyfriend once and for all and get clean and sober and maybe even get it together and join me out here in the US of A. And by the way, Did your mother sell the house? My mother had sold a house. A few years ago, she finally saved up enough money and now it was her turn to fly the nest. She moved to the south of France, bought herself a nice big house in the country. And last time I visited her, I saw she was doing a pretty good job of fooling everyone into thinking that she had also grown up just like the Queen. Extraordinary actress, writer, life liver, Kappa McEwen. Original music written and performed by Alex Mandel and the Snap Judgment players, David Brandt, Tim Frick, and DJ Smooth Grooves. Now, when Snap Judgment returns, we're going to a party to which we are decidedly not invited. When the Crown episode continues, stay tuned. Support for Snap Judgment comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thanks for listening to Snap. Don't forget to download TED Radio Hour, hosted by Guy Raz. It's just one of the many great NPR podcasts you can find on iTunes. Welcome back to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR, the Crown episode. My name is Glenn Washington, and today we're bringing you stories about regular people, the salt of the earth, bumping up against the highest class of all, royalty. So, I had just gotten a brand new job working for the American Embassy in Malaysia, right? And when I first walked off the plane in Kuala Lumpur, I got kind of nervous because there's a huge banner that reads, anyone possessing illegal drugs will be killed. Well, thankfully, I didn't have any of those. A driver actually meets me at the gate, takes me to this palatial home, and tells me this is where I was going to live. A beautiful lady comes out and says she's the maid and to just ask if I need anything at all. And you know, I'm from the Midwest, so this is awesome. 
I go for a little walk and discover that my new home sits next door to a house with a sign reading North Korean Embassy. North Korea. And when you think of North Korean officials, you might picture unsmiling folk dressed in 70s-style pantsuits like Kim Jong-il and nuclear weapons and all that stuff. But nothing could be further from the case for these fellas. Only personal friends of the dictator get let out of North Korea for diplomatic missions. And an assignment like Malaysia was like a get-out-of-jail-free card. And they played it. North Korean royalty. They had the BMWs, the fat sunglasses, the white, white smiles, the pinstripe suits, and the shiny shoes. And every night, right next door to me, they had a party, a blowout, with the ladies and the laughing, and the shouting, all kinds of noise, blaring techno music till four in the morning, right when I'm trying to get some shut-eye. Quiet down! Sure, I could pretend that I was upset over their lack of neighborly consideration. But the real problem, what really burned me up was that nobody, nobody ever invited me over for their good time games. Sometimes I kind of wander near the house, you know, but then these big guards would come out and make sure I kept the stepping. And it became kind of an obsession. I had to get in, I had to get in, I had to get in. And one night I figured that if I couldn't go in the front door, maybe I could try the back. I went to my backyard, next to their backyard. And that's when I saw her. An Australian woman I kinda knew. She spoke in a low voice to a North Korean man. She handed him something, and he handed her something. Drug deals look the same no matter where you are. Then he looked over, and he saw me seeing him. And there was just this anger. Not like he was mad at me. He was just mad mad that I had seen the dirty laundry. And when the woman left the house, I caught up with her. What's going on? She told me. She didn't care. See, North Korea was out of hard currency. So the home office told every foreign mission they had to pay their own way. And diplomats are allowed to take diplomatic pouches inside foreign countries without passing through customs. Normally, this is how you bring in documents and spy stuff and such. But the North Koreans... Royalty or no, they had to make money. So they filled diplomatic pouches with illegal narcotics, marched right by customs, and sold their wares on embassy grounds like two-bit drug dealers. Even if they got caught, diplomatic immunity. And if they didn't play the game, bad things could happen to their families. Very bad things. I stopped trying to get invitations to their parties, and I wore earplugs every night to block out the techno music. Crown episode. We're examining the lives of many different types of queens. Snaps Rita Daniels brings us one young man's tale of struggle before he finally seizes his crown. I felt alive. It was newfound freedom. And Eric was my boyfriend. There was a spark and there was a click when we met. And he was in recovery. He was going to go to this weekend retreat for gay men in recovery. And their significant others or who they were dating were welcome to come as well. And I knew that what happened at Gay Sober Camp stayed at Gay Sober Camp. And so this drag show was happening at the camp. And Eric's sponsor said, do you want to do it? And I said, well, how how am I going to do drag? I never once in my mind thought about doing drag or that I would make a pretty girl. And the fact that they asked me was like, well, if they're asking me, then maybe they'd see potential there. 
I go into this almost locker room type bathroom to get ready with these other drag queens that are, are, are much more established than I am at this point. They're larger than life. And these nine other men becoming women see me just standing there and they circled around me and one of the girls comes running over with a foundation sponge and helps me apply my base and another girl realizes I don't have eye makeup and offers me blue eyeshadow and lines my lips for me. It felt like this induction. I had put on a new skin. The hair was a short blonde bob. It transformed who I was. I owned it. I loved it. What's better than a blonde haired blue eyed boy than a blonde haired blue eyed girl? In drag, it matters who you are as a drag queen. Because if you're going to be a drag queen, you've got to have a name. Otherwise, how are you introduced on stage? And that was the day that Rhoda Few made her debut. R-H-O-D-A-F-U-E. I mouthed the words and I put on jazz hands, slow quarter turns and a soft gaze with my chin cocked to the side, looking in the distance. And then I realized I had ran out of material as far as dance moves. And so when in doubt, promote sex. It always wins. It was only later after the show that I found out that I had literally a 70-something-year-old man that was legally blind and had no idea what was being done to him at the time. And so when they finished, they brought all of us back out, and we all stood there holding hands, and and when they announced the winner, and it wasn't my name, I was a little devastated. I walked away with this new identity. I truly felt that she had something to offer, and I moved forward with that. Here I met this group of people that accepted me, and I found joy in that. I also learned a term during this time that was being called a booger. You're a booger when you first start out in drag because you're kind of sloppy, you're not really that sure of yourself in high heels, your makeup doesn't look right, and you usually forget your lines. I started learning that, you know, cover girl doesn't cover boy. And so I went to MAC and got color tested for pro foundation. So I'd stepped up my game a little bit. It was expensive to be a girl, that was for sure. I spent about $400 on makeup alone, wigs for another couple hundred dollars. And Rhoda kind of started taking over. When I went to a mall, it was no longer to shop for Matt, it was to shop for Rhoda. And if I saw something in the window, I would say out loud to whoever I was with, oh, Rhoda would really like that. I even designated the entire closet in my bedroom to Rhoda, and she was very organized. All of her hair was on foam heads up on the top shelf, and all of her outfits were hung neatly and usually pressed. There was a, a complete separation between Matt Denning and Miss Rhoda Few, and I really started to want to have Rhoda more because Rhoda was more fun. Rhoda went out every night of the week, she could drink like there was no tomorrow and still be standing. She would do crazy things. The mental transition into Rhoda started the second that I opened up my makeup case. Because Matt didn't want to put on makeup, but Rhoda, that was her ritual. And the first brush stroke of foundation really brought her out. You would uh, get your bra on, put in your falsies. My breast actually consisted of pantyhose that had three cups of rock salt in each one and then knotted off and tied. And so I would place these rock salt bags basically in my bra to give me my cleavage. Your hips are industrial foam that you shave with a turkey knife, shape them to your own legs, and then put them on under a pair of dance tights, and then three more pairs of pantyhose over those dance tights so that it was a nice, smooth, consistent line. If you have that many pairs of tights on, you don't need to tuck. It kind of just tucks itself. And so once all that was done, it was time to drink because you tried to be ready 30 minutes before the show would start. But you didn't want to go out into the audience because you would ruin the illusion right away. So the bartenders would bring us drinks in the back and I would get three Jaeger bombers, two shots of vodka and a beer and proceed to take all of the shots in a row. That's how Rhoda did it and all of her friends. So 
whatever. The drunker I got, obviously, the better I felt I was at it. And so I really use liquid courage on a nightly basis as Rhoda. A big part of performing is not just the singing. She'd go work the crowd. Because if you can sacrifice one person, making them feel really uncomfortable, everybody else loves that. And so you play up that. If I found out there was a straight guy out there or somebody that had never been to drag, that was fun. That was a lot of fun to stand up on somebody's table and stick their head under your dress or take one of your fake breasts out and throw it across the room and hit somebody in the head that's not paying attention. It didn't matter because the next day it was all washed away. There was no uh, repercussions as Rhoda. I still had to go to my day job, and even though I was dressed as Matt, I was thinking as Rhoda 24-7. What numbers am I going to do? Oh, you know, I need to fix that hole in in one of my dresses. I kind of started getting sloppy as far as separating Rhoda from Matt, and it was really important for Matt to still exist because Matt funded Rhoda. I went to work one time, and somebody said, hey, there's something on your face, and I went to the bathroom only to discover that I had forgotten to remove the makeup on my face from my chin down. Rhoda, you know, was living life large, but it was really starting to take a toll on Matt to the point where I was hung over every morning for work and really kind of stopped caring. I mean, Rhoda definitely wanted to be full time. I mean, I would leave work early so I could go home and start getting ready for later. I mean, who starts getting ready at three o'clock in the afternoon for a nine o'clock event? But Rhoda did. She liked to take a bath and relax and get ready and take her time. And sometimes it took her five hours to get ready. It just depended on how she felt that day. As this progressed, I started to hemorrhage money. And so I got this grand idea to go to a check cashing place. Like you walk in and you write this check and they give you money instantly with no questions asked. And you just have to pay it back the next time you get paid. I started floating check loans around. I'd borrow from one to pay the other. And I was doing it completely for Rhoda, whether it was outfits or hair or just alcohol. And then it started to catch up on me. One night I was out and that's the first time I ever had blacked out. Apparently I drank two bottles of Chardonnay by myself, had fallen off my stool onto the floor, was combative with the waiter and insulted a few people and I was asked to leave. And I was told that I proceeded to skip up and down the street singing I had the time of my life. So I was hearing all of this for the first time and felt horribly embarrassed, my friend Jessica, that was there that night. Jessica told me that she didn't think she could be my friend anymore. And that was a moment in my life where I had to do a reality check. That was it. The final step was to recognize that Rhoda got me to that spot, and so Rhoda had to go. And I really tried to think about, well, what was the best way to do this? Like. Do I just throw all this stuff in the trash? Do I go out into some field very dramatically and light her on fire? I mean, this is my real life. And so I asked myself solely and completely as Matt, how did I want to handle Rhoda? And I decided that the best way was with a donation. So I sorted Rhoda and boxed her things up and I had met this young man that was interested in drag and he was definitely at the booger level. So. I told him, I said, you know, these things are very special to me and they took me somewhere in my life that at one time was positive and turned negative. And I just want you to always remember that no matter who you're dressed as, your drag persona, that you're still you. So I I gave him all of those things, but I kept one thing. I had this tiny little tiara, a tiara for a small chihuahua. I would just stick this in the front of my wig. And so I put it in its own box and it's almost like her urn and I don't think that it will ever come out of the box because I don't need Rhoda and I think it's pretty obvious that Rhoda always needed me and so there must be something pretty damn good about Matt so why not make him full-time. Today, 
Matt sports the most luscious, thickest beard you will ever see. A beard snappers. What a few would not approve. Thank you so much for sharing your story on the snap. That piece was produced by none other than our own Rita Daniels. Uh-oh, it's about that time. Because time flies when you're having some snap. And you think, Glenn, what am I to do? I think I missed part of the show. Well, not to worry. By Royal Edict, we've made full episodes, movie stuff, available for you right now on our website, snapjudgment.org. Facebook? <laughs> yeah, Snap Judgment's on Facebook. What is wrong with you? Why are you not my Facebook friend? Twitter, snapjudgment.org, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, NPR app, your mama's house, the internet, it's everywhere, just like love. Snap Judgment was produced by myself and Her Majesty's Royal Guild of Bardmaster Poppin' Jays. May I introduce the man-at-arms himself, the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. He tastes the beats before allowing you to. Pat Masidi Miller. Stephanie Fu only drinks from a jeweled goblet. Anna Sussman's veins run with blue blood. Renzo Goriel challenges you to a duel. Julia DeWitt wears overalls at court. Nick Vanderkolk sells no wine before it's time. And if you look closely, you'll see that Will Urbina wears a crown underneath his hoodie. Now, just because we sent them a letter declaring they've been renamed the Hip Hop Hood Hats by order of Her Majesty the Duchess of York, we didn't think they'd really change the stationery so quickly. And Snap Judgment apologizes for any confusion. Many thanks to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, locking the public in the royal dungeons until the public tells us exactly what we need to know. PRX.org. You Speaks, because the next generation can speak for itself. YouSpeaks.org, and you know, this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you can move some old stuff around in the basement, come across an ancient genealogy that unmistakably places you, and not Prince Charles, as next in line for the British crown, then you could burn all proof of your lineage, and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR.